And so, well, how many of you are ready to get into, have they, have they passed? Are we okay? All right. How many of you want to hear about Mormonism tonight? Now, let me quickly, before I turn this on, tell you why we're doing this. We're not pointing a finger at people, and I'm not coming against people, and I'm not uh, uh, sort of glorying in people being wrong, not in any sense of the word. Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormonism and Scientology are cultic doctrines that are knocking on the doors of Christian homes and non-Christian homes. And how are they growing? How are they getting by with it? Why are these people growing the way they are? Because we don't know what the Bible says about what they teach. And a lot of the times we don't know what they really do teach. And so Jude said, I want you to take a stand. I want you to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. Now, that's what we're doing here. We're contending for the faith. We don't want the faith of Jesus Christ and His Word polluted, diluted, skewed, misrepresented, uh, or hijacked by false teaching. So we're going to look at what it really says and what Mormons really teach. And I got to tell you, I'm going to read some things tonight. They're going to curl your theological toenails. They did mine, and it's difficult to even hear some of it. But we're going to look at what they teach and what I want you to do. I anticipate these CDs going out and being given to people who are trapped in Jehovah's Witnesses, trapped in Mormonism, next week trapped in Scientology. And I think you're going to keep this, you're going to have this as a tool to use. Because believe me, I saw them in our neighborhood a couple of weeks ago. And I went out there and said, hey, and they wouldn't come. (laughs) But our hearts go out to these people, and we want to see them delivered from this. Hopefully, by radio, some of them will, uh, will hear this teaching and be delivered. The truth shall make you free. That's what Jesus said. So let's, uh, let's just look at this, and I want you to stand with me and pray, and then you can be seated because I don't have a verse to read tonight. I've already quoted it. Earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. Father, we thank you that you're the great teacher of the church. You sent your Holy Spirit to teach us. Lord, as we look at this false doctrine, this false teaching tonight, I pray that you will illuminate our understanding. Help us as we look at this, Lord, to even more finely hone our own convictions, our own understanding of the Word. And help us, Lord God, to be a light to people who are trapped in these kinds of things. Now, will you breathe a prayer and say, Lord, speak to me tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You can be seated. Now, let me give you a quick profile of the Mormon church. And let's just go into the history a bit and and see how it all began. Once again, like Jehovah's Witnesses, this thing came around in the 1800s. So this is way, way, way late in church history that Mormonism was birthed, okay? Now, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the name they go by, also known as the Mormons. The key leaders, Joseph Smith, the founder, and Brigham Young took uh, took over after Joseph Smith was uh, actually murdered. The date of the founding, 1830, and the headquarters, Salt Lake City, Utah. All right? 
Now let's look at the organizational makeup of the Mormons. I found this kind of interesting. The president, also known as the prophet, is the leader of the church. One leader, sort of like the pope of the Catholic church. The president and his two counselors make up the first presidency of the church. Beneath the first presidency in descending order is quorum of the twelve apostles. That sounded so impressive, I wanted one. But I figured we better not. All right. The quorum. Let, let's, let's have the quorum get together. All right. Um, the quorum of the 70s, which is area presidents, stakes, wards, bishops, and congregation members. And if I had a choice of being any of those, I'd want to be one of those stakes. Just never heard of a stake, but that's a leader in the Mormon church. Now, uh, the official publications, these cults that I've chosen to look at, all have hu- publications with huge mail-outs. And uh, with the Mormons, it's Church News is a weekly newspaper published by uh, the Desert News. The Ensign is the monthly magazine of the church. Now, the name of the local congregation is a ward or a stake center. Can you imagine? Where are you going? We're going to the stake center. Sounds good, doesn't it? The chapel is the name for local Mormon congregation meeting houses. Mormon temples are not for public worship, but they're used for Mormon rituals, for the dead and for the living. Yeah, I read that right. Rituals for the dead. Only the most faithful of all Mormons enter those temples. The organizational makeup of local congregations is like this. Each congregation or ward has a presiding bishop who is not paid but serves as the leader of that congregation. They have annual conventions. General conference meets twice annually in April and October. The event is broadcast in each ward's chapel via closed-circuit satellite. So it's a big deal when they have these annual conventions. Now, there are scriptural sources, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, they have their own. The Book of Mormon is their Bible, pretty much. The Doctrine and the Covenants is another scriptural source, Pearl of Great Price, and the King James Version of the Bible, and I'm going to talk about these different sources in just a minute, all right? But every major cult, like the Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, they have their churches, they have their presidents, they have their histories, they have their Bibles, they have their, their written sources, they have their publications. Their impact is huge. It's huge. And that's why we're talking about this. Now let's look at the essentials on the history of Mormonism. Real quick scan through the characters involved. In 1820, and I got a question mark there because everything about Joseph Smith is a question mark. Okay? Joseph Smith's first vision took place somewhere around 1820. It should be pointed out that in total there are nine differing versions of the first vision, most of which come directly from Joseph Smith. Nine. Well, which one's right? We don't know. They don't know. But let me just show you, and and as I read this, you got to see how confusing and how how messed up this really is. 
The first vision versions differ on chronological dates of reporting of the versions. 1831 to 1832, there were two versions in 1835, 1837, 1838, the official version, 1841, 42, 43, and 44. The actual dates of the occurrence of the first vision, 1820 is the official one, 1822 is the fourth version, 1823 is the second version. Joseph Smith's age when this vision purportedly happened, 14 years old in version 5, 16 years old in version 1, 17 years old in versions 2, 4, and 6. Why Joseph Smith was praying that day? Well, version 1 says he was praying for forgiveness, but that's version 1. Versions 5 and 9 have Joseph praying to learn which church was true. Version 2 has him praying to find out if there was a supreme being or not. Version 3, 5, and 9 state that he was struck with an evil power, leaving him unable to speak. Who appeared to Joseph? Well, version 1 says Jesus himself appeared to him. Version 2 says one messenger from God appeared. Version 3 has two beings with many angels appearing. Version 4, beings who said they were angels. Version 6, one glorious angel appeared. Versions 7 through 2, or um, version 7, I'm sorry, version 7, two beings who did not identify themselves. And version 2, personages with one calling the other his beloved son. What was told to Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism? Versions 1, 2, and 4, his sins were forgiven. Versions 5, he was told that all churches were false. Versions 9, he was told that only the Methodists were wrong. <laughs> okay. I'm just reporting the facts, ma'am. If I were a Methodist, I wouldn't be too worried about it. Now, I had to quote this verse after all of this. Can you read it with me? For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. What I just read to you was high-level, industrial strength confusion. And that matters because this is the founder of Mormonism, and there's nothing clear about his experiences at all, nothing verifiable, nothing. Now, let's just keep scanning a bit through the history. September 21st, 1823, Joseph's uh, second vision in which the angel Morani appears to him three times. And for your information, there exists no such angel in the Bible. September 22nd, 1827, Joseph obtained the golden plates containing the Book of Mormon, strangely reminiscent of what? the Ten Commandments and the tablets that Moses received. March 26, 1830, the Book of Mormon was published and began to sell, all right? So in the early 19th century, the Book of Mormon hit the markets. June 1830, Joseph Smith was given a revelation designating him as prophet, seer, translator, apostle, and elder. In other words, everything. 
and nobody was there but Joseph. April 1832, Brigham Young, his successor, became a Mormon. June 27, 1844, Joseph Smith was shot to death by a mob in Carthage Jail in Carthage, Missouri. I was going to go into all that, but it doesn't really matter. We're looking at doctrine tonight. August 8, 1844, Brigham Young succeeded Joseph as the church's second prophet. 1846 through 47, Brigham Young led the Mormons on the great westward trek ending in Utah. In 1852, the revelation of polygamy was made public. And just wait to see what I have to share with you about that one. Now, August 29, 1877, Brigham Young died. And in 1878, polygamy was declared unlawful by the U.S. Supreme Court. September 25, 1890, Woodruff Manifesto was declared, suggesting that Mormon, or suggesting Mormons refrain from polygamy. In 1972, the Mormon church, watch this now, that's amazing. In 72, they eclipsed 2 million members worldwide. That's why I'm covering this. It's a major worldwide cult phenomenon. Six years later, African Americans were allowed to hold the Mormon priesthood. And in 1997, the Mormon church eclipsed 10 million members Worldwide, I want you to look at the quantum leap, 72 to 97, 25 years, quarter of a century, they grew by 8 million. So the, the Mormon church, and I put that in quotes, is galloping, it's growing. And if the church of the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't answer the false doctrine, I mean really clearly, and nothing stands up and says you're wrong, well, it's only going to quadruple and continue to grow at this rate, and it's not good. And you're going to see why in just a moment. That is not good news. All right. Um, is it on this last one? Yeah. Let me see. Okay. Now, let me give you a quick comparison of Mormon teachings versus Christian teachings. On the subject of Scripture, Mormon, the Book of Mormon, the Pearl of Great Price, the Doctrine and Covenants, to them, according to them, all of these are inspired, like we consider our Bible inspired of God. They believe all of these are inspired, just like Scripture. And they also have the Bible, the King James only, by the way. Now, the Christian, we don't have all those books. We got one, the Bible. Okay? That's our book. We keep it simple. Now, here's what they believe about God. This is so important. They believe that God, that, that, that uh, in polytheism, many gods, multiple gods, they are polytheistic. They believe there is one God over earth and other gods over other things. They believe that God is not eternally divine, but that God was a former man. They believe that God organized the universe. They believe that God progressed, evolved into Godhood. They believe that God possesses a physical body of a man. They believe in a heavenly mother who exists to procreate spiritual children. 
And you read this and you go, but they're growing. How in the world do you grow with teaching this kind of stuff? Because people don't know their Bibles. Now look at the Christian. We are monotheistic. We believe in one God. Amen? We are Trinitarian. One God, three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. We believe that God is eternally divine, that He has never changed, that He has always been God and always will. We believe He is spirit. Or I'm sorry, yes, we we believe He is spirit. We believe He does not change and that He's creator of all. That's what we believe. Now, what do they teach about Jesus Christ? Get ready for your theological toenails to be curled. They do not believe that Jesus Christ is eternally divine. They believe his name is Jehovah. They do not believe he was virgin born by the Holy Ghost. They believe he was Elohim's, that is God's firstborn spirit child. You ready? They believe he's the brother of Lucifer. They believe that Jesus was a polygamist. They believe his death atoned for Adam's sin. And they believe that he progressed or evolved into becoming a God. You know, y'all, I would be afraid to teach this even once, lest God strike me. But didn't Jesus say the wheat will grow up next to the tares, and the tares next to the wheat? And the only way you'll ever know the difference is at the judgment. But we can sure... Uh, you know, don't, don't believe the message that you can't judge people. You can judge the actions of people and you can judge the doctrine of people. We are to be fruit pickers. Jesus said you'll know them by their fruit. And so when I see that people are teaching this, there is no fellow, I have no fellowship with them because this is blasphemy. Okay? Okay? But look, they're growing. Now, now what do Christians believe? Well, you know what we believe that Jesus was virgin born by the Holy Spirit. He's eternally divine, God incarnate. His atonement provided the only way for human salvation. That's what we believe about Jesus. Now, how about salvation? Well, the Mormons believe that immortality is provided through Christ's atoning death, general salvation. They believe original sin isn't real. They believe in grace coupled with works to save you, not grace alone. They believe that we progress into Godhood. They believe salvation was made possible by Jesus and Joseph Smith. JJ. (laughs) They believe there's no salvation outside the LDS church. And they believe in salvation for the dead. What do Christians believe? You know what we believe. Not earned. Salvation is not earned by works. There's no salvation after death. It's given unto a man to die once and then the judgment. We believe that by grace through faith in Christ alone you are saved, not by any works at all, and uh, that you've got to be born again. You want to go on with this? Let's go on with this. How many of you can say amen or oh me? But I want to reiterate We're looking at Mormonism, what they teach. Why are we looking at it? Because they are 
they are spreading the earth, covering the earth with this doctrine. And it is the devil's trick and, and M.O. to conceal, to candy coat these different religions. Say, so, oh, it's not that big a deal. You're a Mormon, you're a Jehovah's Witness, whatever. All that really matters is your intentions. No. This doctrine would leave you lost. You would never find Christ through this doctrine. Okay? So let's look at the essentials of Mormon, Mormon teachings. Well, one, the Book of Mormon. There, Joseph Smith's writings claims to be a record of the inhabitants of North America in ancient times. And they teach that Christ appeared to those North Americans and gave Joseph Smith the Book of Mormon. Okay? Jesus Christ is said to have appeared to the Native American inhabitants just after his resurrection. And, you know, I thought about going into all of this about the Native American inhabitants. It doesn't matter. I want to show you the doctrine and why it's wrong. Now, the Doctrine and the Covenants, that second little book they have, the Doctrine and the Covenants, is a collection of revelations given, and I should have put that in quotes, given primarily to Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, and Joseph F. Smith. It claims to contain additional revelations from God to the early prophets, presidents of LDS Church. When one of their prophets says, I've had a revelation, and they pronounce it and write it down, it is the Word of God to them. And I'm going to show you some of the things they've written in just a minute. So, Doctrine and Covenants, supposed revelation from LDS presidents. What's the Pearl of Great Price, that third book? It's a collection of smaller works that were allegedly revealed to Joseph Smith, as well as Joseph Smith's history and the Articles of Faith. It's an addendum to Doctrines and Covenants. It teaches that Jesus Christ and Satan are brothers, and yet calls Jesus the only begotten in the flesh. Ooh. Okay. Mormon Scripture and Revelation. The KJV Bible. Here's what they say about the King James. It's the Word of God as far as it is translated correctly. Now let me translate that for you. That means anything we don't like in the King James Bible, we just say it wasn't translated right and we update it. And we put in there whatever we want it to say. So that leaves an open-ended opportunity to skew and twist the Word of God. Uh, continuing revelation of the modern day prophet. Whoever the prophet, and I don't know who it is right now, but whoever he is, whatever he says is revelation, if he announced today that he had a revelation from God, the whole Mormon church says it's the Word of God. It's the Word of God. So this continuing opportunity and availability on the part of the Mormon hierarchy to say, here's a new revelation, they can do it any time. And to the Mormons, it's the very Word of God. And that's really serious, folks. Now, here's what they teach about God. Let's look at it a little more carefully. Polytheistic. They're polytheistic. There's many gods. Here's what one of their prophets or presidents wrote. We believe in the revelation given through Joseph Smith, which says there are many gods, and that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob 
are gods. And that all good men in this church, the Mormon church, shall become gods. Now, I'm going to toss something your way and I'm going to move right along. Have you heard taught anywhere in the Christian church on what we call Christian television, Christian radio? Have you heard the teaching that we Christians are actually little gods? If you've ever heard it, raise your hand. A lot of you have. Yeah, it's out there. It's out there usually in the charismatic movement, what we would call the charismatic movement, which is a great big pool of possibility, a great big pool of different teachers and sources. But I heard somebody just a few weeks ago, I don't need to say their name, but they said, you said to their church, a huge church of about 6,000 people, you are little gods. Yep. And so when I hear that, I think, well, Joseph Smith teaches the same thing. I think we got to be real careful here. We're the redeemed. We are sinners saved by grace. We've been born again. We are the recipients of the mercy and the grace of God. But we ain't no little God. You a little God? Come up and talk to me about it afterwards. I got some things I want. Okay. I'm just telling you what's out there. This was on a Christian channel and uh, a very, very well-known charismatic preacher. And it just gives me the creep, the creepos. It really does. Now, uh, now here's another thing they say about God. He's not eternally divine. And he is progressing. God is, is a, God is subject to an evolutionary process where he is progressing. Quote, here's what Joseph Smith wrote. We have imagined and supposed that God was God from all eternity. I will refute that idea. And take away the veil so that you may see. Well, Joseph, go right ahead and refute it. But you're arguing with the Word of God that says He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that our God doesn't change. But they've got God in an evolutionary process where He's evolving into something higher and higher all the time. Here's another thing they teach. Elohim, one of the Hebrew names for God, organized this universe from pre-existing materials. He was the organizer, not the creator. So God's a great organizer in the sky. He didn't create. And that's out of, uh, and I give the, the quotes here so you'll know that I'm not just making this up. Now, I, I put in here false. In the beginning, who created the heavens and the earth? God did. Now, that Hebrew word bara is used for created, and which is to create something out of nothing. We call it ex nihilo, ex nihilo, something out of nothing. Our God said, let there be, and something appeared out of nothing. Ex nihilo, that's how God created. He didn't grab a planet here and some water there and a rainbow over here and some dust over there and grab existing materials and shape and form the earth because then you're always faced with the question, well, where did those things come from? There had to be a beginning of beginnings. 
And in, where was the beginning? What, you know, if you believe the Big Bang Theory, that there was this huge cloud of gas swirling around in the universe, and just the right temperature and speed and molecular uh, uh, friction and so on and so forth, and there was this Big Bang, and the universe, whoosh, began. Well, then where did the gases come from? you got to always go back to there was a beginning of something that began it all. Well, God created ex nihilo, something out of nothing. You can't do that, little God. Can you? No, because you'd be rich. Only God can create something out of nothing. Okay? Everybody say amen. Isn't this something to see this stuff? Now, here's another thing they teach. Heavenly Father, the Heavenly Father was once a human being who lived on another planet. I don't know which one. After his physical birth, and guess what? The Heavenly Father has a father, according to Mormon teaching. The Heavenly Father has a father. Let me just quote it. Apostle Orson Pratt in The Seer said this on page 132. Quote, we were begotten by our Father in heaven. The person of our Father was begotten on a previous heavenly world by his Father. And again, he was begotten by a still more ancient Father. And so on. In other words, today's God isn't yesterday's God and won't be tomorrow's God. He's ever-changing. He's ever-evolving. Did you know they teach this? Did you know this? Now, I wrote false with shaking, trembling fingers when I read this. And I quote uh, James here. James wrote, whatever is good and perfect comes down to us from God our Father, who created all the lights in the heavens. Read it with me. He never changes or casts even a shifting shadow. That's our God. What he was a trillion years ago, he'll be a trillion years from now. He's not evolving. He is. Jesus said, I am that I am. I am. What God was, as far back as you can imagine, he is now. And what he is now, he'll be 100 trillion years from now. God doesn't change. He's not evolving. All right, another one. And this one, I just, it just, oh well, here's what they teach. Heavenly Father is a polygamist. And a heavenly mother exists. And that's blasphemy. Now, quote, I'm quoting now from their writings. Inasmuch as God was the first husband to marry do you know that God and Mary got hitched? Did you know that? I didn't know that. He was the first husband to marry. It may be that he only gave her to be the wife of Joseph while in this mortal state. And that he intended after the resurrection to again take her as one of his own wives to raise up immortal spirits in eternity. Can you imagine walking into a place and hearing this talk? But if you don't know the Bible, you'll believe anything. All right. Now that was Orson Pratt again, the seer. Now here he writes, We have now clearly shown, says Mr. Pratt, that God the Father 
had a plurality of wives, one or more being in eternity. I wrote, this is ludicrous and blasphemous, Jesus said, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they're like the angels in heaven. The point being that spirit beings, which God is, don't marry. Y'all are so quiet. I didn't know this stuff. Next time they come knocking on your door, Mormon doctrine of Jesus Christ. This is really hard to get through. Let's do it quickly. They say that Jesus was preexistent but not eternal. Quote, in the Doctrines and Covenants, they write, Christ the firstborn was the mightiest of all the spirit children of the Father. So he is a spirit child of the Father. So he was not always, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was not God, coexistent with God, but he was born as a spirit, child of the Father. And I write what I just quoted in one of my favorite verses in the book of John. Let's read it together again, can we? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So Jesus is just God the Son. And if you make Him anything less than that, you're in false teaching. It's error. Okay? Now, here's another thing they teach. He's neither virgin born nor conceived by the Holy Ghost. Here's what Brigham Young wrote. Now remember from this time forth and forever that Jesus Christ was not begotten by the Holy Ghost. That's blasphemy. Listen to what the Bible says. Uh, the angel told Joseph when he found out that Mary was uh, pregnant with child. The angel said to her, don't be afraid to take to you, marry your wife. Read it with me, everyone. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. In direct opposition to Mormon teaching. See, Mormon te- if you go by Mormon teaching, you'll never be born again, never be saved. Because we come to a Savior who was born of a virgin by the power of the Holy Ghost without the aid of man. And, and so he was that very begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And he was not tainted with Adam's sin, either by association or by action. Because he did not have Adam's blood flowing through his veins. That's why the Holy Ghost overshadowed Mary and she conceived by the power ex nihilo of God. <clears throat> now here they go again, and I know this is difficult. We're almost done. Y'all breathe deep. This is difficult, but I want to show you. Now, here's another thing they teach about Jesus. He's the spirit brother of Lucifer, Satan. Now, you think I'm kidding? Milton Hunter in the gospel through the ages, and I give the pages right there, wrote this. The appointment of Jesus to be the Savior of the world was contested by one of the other sons of God. He was called Lucifer, son of the morning. Haughty, ambitious, and covetous of power and glory, this spirit brother of Jesus desperately tried to become the Savior of mankind. Where do you get that? There's absolutely nothing in Scripture to support this. Satan, Jesus' brother, Jesus called Satan the father of lies, not a brother. We're getting there. 
say amen. amen. Now this one, they say Jesus was a polygamist. Uh, and this was written by Brigham Young. The grand reason, he says, the grand reason for the burst of public sentiment in anathemas upon Christ and his disciples causing his crucifixion was evidently based on polygamy. A belief in the doctrine of a plurality of wives caused the persecution of Jesus and his followers. We might almost think that they were Mormons. Again, this is utterly ludicrous. Jesus once asked the Pharisees why they wanted to kill him. And they answered, because you being a man, make yourself God. They killed him for what they called blasphemy because Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Not because he was a polygamist. All right. They teach uh, that Adam fell, but he fell upward. Oh, I, I must have missed one real quickly. Let me. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, Mormon doctrine of salvation individual humans sin by action and not by a corrupt nature. Uh, and then they write this old sectarian doctrine of man's natural depravity and weakness inherited from Adam is at the root of innumerable problems among us. Adam fell, but he fell in the right direction. That's news to me. He fell towards the goal. And then they say, Adam fell, but he fell upward. Oh, what does the Bible say? Read it with me. Therefore, through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam didn't fall upward. I'm going to talk to Adam when I get to heaven. I'm going to say, thanks a lot, bub lot of suffering because of you. All right. I mean, this is ludicrous, but this is what is being taught, and we've seen how this thing is growing by leaps and bounds. Now, here's another thing they teach. As a result of grace coupled by works, we are saved by grace mixed with works. Uh, here's one of their presidents writes this, immortality comes as a free gift by the grace of God alone without works of righteousness. But eternal life is the reward for obedience to the laws and the ordinances of the gospel. Well, you know what I'm going to quote here. Let's read it together. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works. Here's another one. I, I had to giggle at this one. Salvation is made possible by the works of Jesus Christ and Joseph Smith. And all cults do this. All cults will make you dependent on them, on usually a leader uh, who had the Word of God, supposedly. So, you know, I got to be saved, I got to do it through Joseph Smith and Jesus Christ. And look what they wrote. No man or woman in this dispensation will ever enter into, this, into the celestial kingdom of God without the consent of Joseph Smith. Every man and woman must have the certificate of Joseph Smith. Got to have a Joseph Smith passport. Well, I want to know where you get it. And where is he standing that I got to show it to him to get into the celestial kingdom? I mean, it's, it's ludicrous. But again, it's growing. Now, <laughs> 
And they literally wrote this as a passport to their entrance into the mansion where God and Christ are. And Brigham Young wrote that. A couple of other things they teach. Uh, There's no salvation outside LDS and there's salvation for the dead. Now the essentials on Mormon. Let me give you a couple of examples of Mormon biblical distortions and we're going to be done. Let me just show you how they twist the word. A couple of examples and we're done. Psalms 82.6. David uh, wrote, I said, you are gods and all of you are sons of the Most High. That's a psalm. 82.6. I said, God talking, you are gods and all of you are sons of the Most High. Now here's the Mormon distortion. Many gods exist and many can become gods. They point to this verse and they say, see, plural gods. And God is saying to somebody, you are gods. So that must mean that polytheism is real. Well, what's the correct interpretation? The focus of attention of Psalms 82 is on the judges of Israel who were commonly referred to as gods by the Israelite community because of their judicial power to decide life and death. That's it. Now let's look at another one. Romans 8.16, one of my favorite chapters. Read it with me, can you? The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now how do the Mormons twist that one? Here's the distortion. The LDS church believes that children of God in Romans 8.16 means that humans were born as the spirit children of our Heavenly Father and mother before I say crazy baby I know but watch this now children of our heavenly father and mother before receiving mortal bodies on earth in other words we all lived in heaven before we were born mortally we just don't remember it now here's the correct interpretation and you you can figure this out the context of Romans 8 clearly gives the reasons why people can be called the children of God Romans 8.15 articulates the fact that individual human beings become the children of God by adoption when they are saved. Whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Okay? Now, that was verse 16. They go on to verse 17, and we'll close with this. Romans 8.17 says, And if children, heirs also heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Here's what the Mormons do to distort that verse. The Mormon church uses Romans 8:17 to teach their doctrine of exaltation or evolution into godhood, which is a central concept in Mormon theology that says that if somebody is faithful to the Mormon gospel, he will merit godhood in the celestial kingdom. And that's how it's taught. In fact, to the Mormons, exaltation is viewed as the ultimate salvation for Mormon people. But we know the correct interpretation. Being a fellow heir with Jesus Christ doesn't mean exaltation into godhood. An heir is somebody who is given an estate, not somebody who earns the estate. The context maintains that one becomes a child of God by adoption which of course means the child of God would also be an heir by adoption. 
So when we receive our mansion in heaven, we didn't earn it. We got it by adoption. Our daddy is rich in the things, I mean, in glory, by the riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now, three quick questions to ask Mormon people. Why should I join the Mormon church when they come knocking on your door? Why should I join the Mormon church if I'm already certain of my salvation? How many of you are sure you're saved? So here they come. You need to join the Mormon church to be saved. And you say, why should I join the Mormon church if I'm already certain of my salvation? When your theology teaches that if I leave the church, I'll be damned as an apostate. So I'm saved before I come in. How can I be damned to hell if I come out? Selah. Think about these things. Here's another one. Why should I believe in the God of Mormonism when Mormon theology teaches there is probably one greater than him and that he's still progressing? In other words, how do I believe in a God who's always progressing and changing and giving birth to another God? And see how they look at you with that question. Here's another one and the last one. Where in the Book of Mormon does it teach the current Mormon doctrines of God and Jesus Christ and salvation? Show me that in the Book of Mormon. You know why they can't? Because Mormon teachings have changed so often, the Book of Mormon is now dated. That's just some examples. But how many of you can see with me the danger of the teachings of this church? And it is very, very deadly stuff. Are you glad you're redeemed by grace? Amen. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb? All right, let's stand together, can we? Oh, I just feel like taking a spiritual bath. I'll tell you. Um, yeah, and so, amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the true gospel once delivered to the saints. Help us, Lord, to, to be knowledgeable enough to talk to a Mormon, to a Jehovah's Witness, with knowledge. And we pray that you will deliver people from this terrible and deceptive doctrine. Lord, thank you. The truth will set us free. Can we just lift our hands, uh, church, and just thank the Lord for his blood, for his grace, for his mercy. Hallelujah to God. Hallelujah to God. We serve a God who does not change. We serve a Jesus who is the Redeemer of all who call on his name. We serve a God who loved us so much he gave his only begotten son born of a virgin by the power of the Holy Ghost. Thank God, thank God for salvation. In him alone, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Steve, lead us to sing just the name Jesus from way back there. Just lead us in an acapella, can you? Jesus, let's worship him.